This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people upon whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and to the Gadigal people from whose land we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. As we go to air today, there are great hopes that the USA will now put a lot of energy into climate policies. Headlines are Unity and ambitious climate policy can win elections. And we've just seen Biden in the USA. And Australia warned it could be isolated over climate inaction after Biden victory. And another headline New South Wales Environment Minister Matt Keane urges end to pointless backward looking arguments about climate action. And then over at Murdoch Media, Andrew Bolt, who was gloating for President Trump until the end, then said this. President Trump wants his supporters to feel a rage that will feed any political or media career for the next four years. Good for him, not good for democracy. Well, that's a pivot if ever I heard one. We'll talk later to Senator Janet Rice about how this will impact Australia. So essentially what it means is that, you know, for us, we are left out in the cold. We are left just with, you know, the, the petro states and Russia, basically, in trying to avoid the serious and urgent action that's needed. And then we'll hear American voices who have been working all through COVID to build back better. We'll hear Annie Leonard from Greenpeace USA and Kathy who's with the Global Nurses United. So in this work, we see firsthand how the global climate crisis threatens all people, all people, including forcing them to flee from drought and famine and the significant health impacts of corporate-aligned government exploiting xenophobia from refugees and immigrants. But first, Michael Lord is with us, Head of Research for Beyond Zero Emissions. He has 600-plus projects on his database, and one of his high points concerns cement. The amount of appetite there was for the, the solutions we were offering was, was very gratifying, and it was exciting to see that you could, by entering new ideas into this area, you could excite people. And the cement industry has moved enormously since we wrote that report. So as we leave Quarry Vision behind, here's Michael Lord to paint a picture of advanced manufacturing made competitive with cheap wind and solar power. Michael Lord is the author of Beyond Zero Emissions' Million Jobs Plan. He's the research lead at Beyond Zero Emissions. So welcome, Michael. Breaking news is that the new US president has will promise trillions towards net zero emissions. So a lot of climate action specialists are thinking, wow, this is going to have a big impact on us. And I wanted, wanted to know, what do you think this will do to pivot our government onto a different track? 
Well, who knows? But Vivian, um, hopeful, wishful thinking, Michael. Yes. Yeah, so, 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 being hopeful, it feels like it could be a watershed year. I'm not relentlessly optimistic about climate change, but I am pretty optimistic this year. A lot of things seem to be pointing in the, uh, the same direction. There's the economics. Not only is wind and solar the cheapest form of electricity generation now, but nearly everybody realizes that, including uh, Australia's federal government. We've had some unusual suspects get on board with climate action like South Korea. Their stimulus package was very much pointed towards green stimulus and emissions reduction. And they have they've stated a goal to be uh, carbon neutral by mid-century, as have now Japan and China. So there's a really significant announcement. So in the political and economic and business spheres, Everything is now pointing towards uh, an agreement that we need to move towards zero emissions. And really the last, you know, the European Union have, have strengthened their longstanding commitment to climate action. The United States under Trump was the big outlier, really, the big kind of trading block of power base that, you know, they, they, they left the Paris Agreement the day after the election, I think it was. So with Biden... Um, you know, it remains to be seen what he does, but he does have pretty ambitious climate plans, including the $2 trillion investment that you mentioned. So I think all those things together mean uh, it's going to be very hard, increasingly hard for Australia to remain an outlier. Yes, I agree with you about the not having unrelenting optimism, because a lot of people want us to talk optimism, especially in the media, hope, green shoots and all of that. But we've changed the chemistry of the ocean. We've changed the biosphere so badly that a lot of species are going towards extinction so we know that to me it's like post-world war ii and we have to have a marshall plan you know you roll yeah. out a recovery plan and i know bze is very big on the technology and just in big broad brushstrokes what do you think of the big things that need to change to get the quickest reduction in emissions I'm thinking globally now. Yeah, the, the quickest reduction in emissions is, is from the energy sectors. So to decommission coal and then gas-fired power stations and replace them with whatever renewables are suitable for that country. But it's solar and wind are the cheap ones, and then they need to be backed up by different forms of storage, dispatchable generation. So it's electricity sector itself but then, you know, we move, need to move to electrify all those other things that use fossil fuels. So that's transport, manufacturing and buildings, yep. are the three sectors. And um, most of the decarbonisation in those sectors is going to come from electrification. Michael, I think you more than many people know just how fast things are changing. I'd like to take you back to when you first started thinking about this concept of zero emissions. It's really, it really seemed like an impossible quest maybe at the beginning, but what hopes did you have then? Well, I guess, you know, it was probably about 2005 I started to become concerned about climate change. I hoped, I assumed everyone would eventually see it as the, incredibly serious existential risk that it is and that politics would follow right I, yeah. I, I i guess i never thought it would take so long to persuade people that it is a risk and i didn't think it would need to rely quite so much on the economics as is proving to be the case i thought you know you drew an analogy with after the second world war but there's also during the second world war 
no one was making the economic case for fighting the Nazis, right? It was just, we we need to do this and let's work out how. That's where I thought we would get to. And we never really have. uh, The thing that's giving me hope at the moment is that in so many places, the economics points in the right direction. Look, the pandemic has given us all a, a big chance to reset. It's been a shock, but there are many models around the world of building back better And I'd like you to take us on a little mini tour of some of the highlights of Building Back Better that you see around the world. Well, um, I'm I'm, I'm not sure how qualified I am to do that. I I know a little uh, of what's going going on around the world. I mean, for a start, this phrase, Building Back Better, which uh, I think has come from Europe, but gives us hope that, you know, it comes from the, the damage to our economies, the fact that the response to governments around the world has been huge stimulus packages and uh, the recognition that how things were going before in a high carbon world is not suitable. So the stimulus needs to be taking us towards a zero carbon world. So just the fact that that is recognized by mainstream economists and senior politicians uh, in many countries is a really good thing. So there have been major green stimulus packages in uh, the UK, France, Germany, South Korea that I mentioned. There's been a little tiny bit in Australia. It's something like a tenth of the amount compared to those countries. But even in those countries that I mentioned, you know, even in the best countries, not all of this is building back better. There has been stimulus which encourages the high carbon economy. Just to choose one example of those uh, is the bailouts of airlines. No doubt we need airlines as part of the economy, but in return for those bailouts, there should have been some commitments extracted for uh, reducing emissions. Yeah, you've told us a lot about the retrofitting of buildings, and that's you know, there's some really lovely models that you've described to us on the various webinars. We've covered it on this program, but what are some other models? What are other sectors of society are trying to use that stimulus money to have a climate safe future? The transport sector, uh, we're very close now to electric cars being as cheap at the point of purchase as petrol and diesel cars, and they're already much cheaper to run. So as soon as they become cheaper to uh, as cheap to buy i think we'll see that market develop very quickly so there's lots of money being put into charging infrastructure uh, also electric buses around the world but those are two areas okay well look recently i did a show about the french citizens assembly on climate and the best thing i learned from them was that president macron has put into action many of their recommendations and so they were like a Uh, citizens think tank now they weren't specialists like beyond zero emissions but they were citizens and they said the things that they wanted so he has used some of those recommendations many of them have been incorporated into the french economic recovery so i wanted to know has beyond zero emissions got the ear of canberra are you able to talk to our politicians and turn them away from the gas-led recovery maybe or just put new ideas in their heads about the million jobs plan for example beyond zero emissions is in kind of a unique position amongst the climate movement in that we've always stressed that we're apolitical and we focused because we focus on technology and engineering uh, i think we come across as apolitical 
at the same time as having some of the most ambitious goals, you know, decarbonization in 10 years <laughs> of organizations in the climate movement. Um, so that legacy of being apolitical does enable us uh, to have a voice with federal government. We are able to get meetings with ministers and um, the prime minister's office, for example. They, they will look at our briefing papers and talk to us. And I think that's really important because sometimes it can be quite a narrow section of the, the electorate that governments are talking to. And it's really important that they hear the message that we can do this uh, the technology is ready and it can be good for the economy and create jobs. So it's, it's certainly been a major focus of ours since the Million Jobs Plan to engage the federal government and ensure that they're hearing these ideas. In terms of whether they're changing, I mean, we all know where the, the federal government has been for several years. I, I would say that they, they are changing slowly. And again, if we're wanting to look for hope, think about how much they used to talk about coal and how little they do now. There's not a lot of talk about building a coal-fired coal power stations, for example. Yeah, but the slogan from coal to clean is not the transition they're going to make. They're going, from, going to go from coal to gas to clean. And that's the the sort of slowing down factor, the delay factor that I'm hoping that there'll have been much more citizens input. You know, the think tank is giving them ready-made plans. I don't know why they don't just grasp them and say, oh, you know, and put their own name on yeah, it and say, yeah. we thought of this um, because you're doing the work that they should be doing. I think it's yeah, yeah, terrific. yeah. Yeah. Well, we would, we would love them to obviously, Vivian. I mean, we think we should <laughs> grasp our ideas, but uh, I also really like the idea of that. Um, the uh, citizens' assemblies, not just in climate, but uh, in, in other areas. Oh, uh, terrific. True. Well, look, Michael, yeah. just to talk about manufacturing, because I know this is an area you've looked a lot into. And if you were looking down from a mountain, I think you would say that Australian manufacturing might make a comeback if this cheap renewable energy feeds in rather than expensive gas and coal. And I wonder, out of your database of over 600 projects I read about, which ones will be fast-tracked in Australian manufacturing? Well, uh, you know, I'm not, it's hard for me to pick which ones are going to be successful. But your point about the chance for Australia, a resurgence in manufacturing in Australia is right. This will be based on the fact that Australia can produce an abundance of affordable, clean energy because of Geography, it's a, it's a big country with a lot of sun and quite a lot of wind as well. Manufacturing has never gone away in Australia. It still employs nearly a million people here. But it is a lower proportion of the workplace uh, in many developed countries and much lower than in somewhere like Germany or Japan, uh, where they really, the governments have always backed manufacturing. So even with our natural advantages, we would do a lot better with some kind of government, coordinated government strategy. And, you know, one of the reasons that hasn't happened is because we've, we've relied so much on mining for our exports. Yes. But, but we can bring those two together. Um, you know, the, the next stage after mining, if you might, if you think of something like iron ore, manganese ore or zinc, whatever it is, is a very energy intensive process. And often we, we send it to another country to carry out that process. But, ne but now we need to carry out these processes in a zero emissions way. We can do that here. We can process those metals onshore using ores mined in Australia and using renewable energy produced in Australia. Well, we did one program about green steel at Wyala, and that was 
promising. What other things, though, can we do that's useful, very useful and very needed and that we can make it here? Because I think also through the pandemic, people realise the supply chain is very faulty. When you're all locked down, you need to be able to manufacture your own things. So what sort of things have you been looking at? Well, I guess there's two different categories. There's the sort of um, further upstream materials like steel. So there's other examples. There's Australia mines most of the metals that are used in the world. Yeah. Uh, so any of those metals, lithium, nickel, uh, you know, copper, manganese, they can be processed here using um, using our renewable energy. And then there's other high energy products like, uh, you know, the governments are very excited about hydrogen a burgeoning uh, international trade in uh, renewable hydrogen. Hydrogen is also used to make ammonia, um, which is the basis for most uh, industrial fertilizers. So those are very in- energy intensive things that we could be making in Australia and exporting. The second category is the more sort of advanced manufacturing of products that enable the zero carbon trans- transition. So things like batteries, uh, electrolyzers, electric buses, things like that. We, we don't have to make them all in Australia, but what's clear is that there's many different opportunities to manufacture those advanced goods here in Australia. And we've recently seen a battery factory announce, a very large battery factory announce that it will set up in the Hunter Valley Energy Renaissance. Well, that's the sort of thing I think listeners want to hear, you know, the names and the details. It's the sort of thing that a lot of, well, we're often accused of techno-optimism. I, a lot of people say to me, look, the game's over for, because we're, they're coming from a climate change perspective, looking at all the horrible destruction that climate change is already doing and that we're already creating creating more of it and there's more locked in you know climate change is sort of locked in by the existing emissions but so they say to me look all this is techno optimism and it's all part of capitalism and then they say look and i think too one of the obstacles is our growth mentality um, and one of those french citizens people has written a book on it called Exploring Degrowth. And he says we need to slow down, pull our economies down in a way. Maybe that's from a European perspective. But I think many people want a care economy, a circular economy, and much more involvement of the workers, you know, in what's made and not just for profits and shareholder, you know, with gleaming eyes. So what do you think about that? You know, the actual danger of just carrying on with industry and manufacturing to make more profits and more growth and and create the same problems that we're facing now. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess it's getting beyond, beyond zero emissions is a, a think tank that focuses on technical engineering aspects. So it's getting beyond what beyond zero emissions talks about. But personally, you know, I, I think we should be just agnostic as to whether growth occurs or not. We should have aims, as you say, like caring for each other. Everyone's productive. Everyone has what they need. Uh, we live within uh, environmental constraints. Those should be the aims of the economy and society. And if that's delivered with growth, fine. And if it's delivered without growth, fine. You know, if we're doing everything we want and we're not growing, I think we should be happy with that, but it's become the overarching objectives, the objective of most countries in the world, I guess, regardless of whether we're actually, you know, caring for people in the environment. But yeah. but just from a just from a practical point of view, that's a that's a much larger political objective. And I think if we say of first before tackling climate change, we have to uh, restructure 
politics and society, then we're slowing things down even more. You know, we, we can achieve a hell of a lot within the, the, the existing model of the way that things work. You know, capitalism has delivered very cheap solar panels, which are absolutely crucial to zero emissions. So just, just, from, the, um, just from the point of view of the, the speed that this needs to happen, I'm kind of skeptical of, of any argument that says, first, we need to reconstruct the system. Yeah. I think we have to work uh, within the existing system. But a lot of the innovations that you've been uh, publishing about, for example, at Collie, in that report at Collie, which was making the transition away from coal, a lot of that was about circular economy, wasn't it? About reusing old batteries, for example, re repurposing them. So I think a lot there's a lot of room for circular economy here. Yeah, and that's something people uh, are very uh, supportive of. You know, if you look at surveys of policies that people... Uh, ordinary people support one is you know people hate waste they hate the idea that we just throw everything away uh, and that they're part of that system so people are really supportive of uh, circular economies they're also really supportive of measures to increase domestic manufacturing which is uh, not a sort of free market ideology that's you know we just um, manufacture it wherever uh, is cheapest but Actually, the actual electorate are supportive of um, these policies and we should take advantage of that and, um, you know, encourage circular economy and, and encourage domestic and clean manufacturing. You're on the front seat of the roller coaster, seeing these things and you're the research director. You're seeing things that are just breaking over the horizon that other people don't see. So what have been some of the highlights for you? So following Rethinking Cement, in general, the... That was the first report I wrote for Beyond Zero Emissions, uh, mm -hmm. and we believe the first report to show how a national cement industry could decarbonise, which was seen as basically impossible to abate at the time. And when I was writing that, it was my first report, and I thought, no one's going to be interested in, in cement, right? <laughs> no. no one's worried about it as a problem. Who cares? Uh, <laughs> You know, but actually, um, there was loads of, you know, I'm not talking about national media, but from no. the very large number of people that are involved in cement and concrete because they're involved, you know, construction, they're involved in infrastructure companies. And the amount of appetite there was for the, the solutions we were offering was, was very gratifying. And it was exciting to see that you could, by entering new ideas into this area, you could excite people. And probably one of the... Uh, outcomes of that that I really liked was Transurban, who probably don't have the reputation as Australia's most sustainable company, um, approached us and said, look, we really want to reduce our uh, emissions and, and the biggest uh, sort of embodied emissions we have of our cement use. Uh, we want you to tell us how, write a rethinking cement report for us, show oh. us how we can do that. And we said, well, if you're going to engage us, we're going to give you something ambitious. If you just want a standard consulting report and go to a standard consultant and they said no that's what we want we want something ambitious so, what um, do they do what does transurban do transurban um builds and operates um roads in australia and the us so you help them get their emissions down if they um, embrace this new form of cement yeah that's right um uh, it, it, it's been integrated into their emissions reductions targets and they've been on the bzd radio show as well 
Yes, I know. I must say, Rethinking Cement must have been the funniest book title I've ever, <laughs> we've ever come across. <laughs> and rethinking it is so exciting, really, because you got onto all that leftovers. This is, again, circular economy, all the leftover stuff from uh, coal mining. I can't remember, potash or something. Can you, do, has that started to happen, that people are making that type of concrete, cement? Uh, look, uh, yeah, so that's right. So the, the, the solutions in Rethinking Cement were all, nearly all of them using waste material. So waste from burning coal, which Australia has millions of tons of after doing it for a century. Uh, but also other types of waste like making steel and even waste clays that are at the edge of mine sites that have been excavated. So yeah, it was all about reusing wastes. Um, the cement industry already uses quite a bit of fly ash and steel slag. Um, but we were saying they could use a lot more uh, and we could start to effectively mine stockpiles of fly ash that are sitting next to every coal-fired power station. So we wouldn't need to keep building coal. It would be part of the... Um, rehabilitation. Um, rehabilitation, that's, thank you. that's the <coughs> that's word right. I was looking for, the rehabilitation <laughs> of the mine sites. So, so yes, people are doing it, but um, they could be doing a lot more. And the cement industry has moved enormously since we wrote that report. Oh, that is great news. Well, that's super news to finish because we did interview you back then and, and I remember struggling with that booklet and thinking, oh, I don't really understand this. But, you know, to know that the industry's moved, and that's why I say you're on the front seat of the roller coaster, and I'm really glad you spoke to us today. <laughs> well, so for the listeners, that was Michael Lord. He's the Head of Research at Beyond Zero Emissions, and their latest report is... Million Jobs Plan. And what was that other one about the precincts, Michael? Yeah, so it's something that comes from the Million Jobs Plan. It's a concept called Renewable Energy Industrial Precincts. That's right. And we covered that last time. And so big things are happening. Places on the map that city people, you know, Melbourne and Sydney people mightn't really know, like Collie and like um, Gladstone and like Port Kembla, Bell Bay in Tasmania. There's a whole map of these places where precincts might happen and will starting to happen where renewable energy will feed in and all these new manufacturing and other exports will start happening. Thanks, Michael. Here's Michael's favourite song, Age of Consent by New Order.
Hell, I'm worried about climate change. Are we in trouble? Don't be glum, Dave. Right now, solar, wind power, hydropower, and carbon sequestration technologies are being developed throughout laboratories all over the world. I need more information, Hal. I can't give that to you, Dave. Tune in to BZE Technology on Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. When? Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. Now we have Senator Janet Rice with the latest from Parliament. Will Australia pivot from coal to clean and not via gas? Will Zali Stegall's climate bill, or another one, lift climate policy above politics? Uh, welcome, Janet. Look, you said this was a win for the global fight to face the climate emergency. Can you speak to that, please? Oh, look, it's um, Joe Biden's win in the, the US election is incredibly important. I mean, it's... Look, we know that he, he will, once he's president, he will disappoint us from day one because he's a centrist, you know, democratic president and won't be going nearly as far as what we, you know, those of us who are on the progressive side of politics want him to go. But it is such a huge step forward from where we've been with Donald Trump for the last four years. And in particular, the fact that Joe Biden on climate recognises climate as an existential threat. I mean, he has come out since the election of saying that this is the biggest issue that humanity is facing on the globe. That is just you know, light years different from where Donald Trump was at, who was essentially a climate denialist, and, of course, light years different from where our um, politics is at as well. The, the platform that Biden has taken to this election not only includes a commitment to zero emissions by 2050, but importantly, it also sets some targets for what needs to happen well before then. So mm -hmm. and by 2035, he's, got, he's saying that the US should be able to reach zero emissions electricity by 2035. And so you have that complete change in the global approach to climate, and it's just a, a fundamental shift. And of course, Biden has also said that you know the US will rejoin the the Paris um, Treaty and so rejoin the international efforts to be tackling climate change. And we know that that's what's needed. So essentially, what it means is that you know for us, we are left out in the cold. We are left just with you know the the petro states and Russia basically in trying to avoid the serious and urgent action that's needed. Well, you said you had a matter of urgency in the Senate yesterday. Tell us about that. Yes, we, um, the Greens had the opportunity to, to debate what's called a matter of public urgency. So there's an hour that's set aside on most sitting days to debate something. And we got the opportunity to choose the topic yesterday. And it was to congratulate President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris and, and as a win for democracy, as a win for you know, people of colour, but in particular as a win for climate and calling upon the Morrison government to be noting the need for urgent action as, as President-elect Biden um, has committed to. So we had a, a good debate and then because it was a, a motion, it actually was then up for a vote and it passed the Senate. So the Senate actually sort of passed this motion yesterday, sort of in particular calling for action, you know, not just, it's not good enough just to have a net zero target by 2050. I mean, that's good. Um, and our government's reluctant, not even committing to do that. But if we're going to reach that, 
um, we need to have serious targets and serious action in, in the next decade. In fact, you know, by yesterday, as you and I yeah, know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, the pandemic has woken up a lot of people globally to the power of science just for our health. We just need those people looking down their microscopes to work out what's happening and we follow their advice. At least here we do. And I want to know, Will, you said this is a win for science. And I, this Biden election, will, will climate scientists now get a hearing? You know, they've been, I've been going to so many webinars during this lockdown and, you know, all these people in America are just raring to go. They've got policies, got plans. They just want someone to say, go with it, run with this. But do you think climate science will now be taken seriously? Look, I hope so. And you can only hope so. And you can only hope that... You know, we need to have science right there at the core of our decision making in parliaments across the world and in you know, business decisions that are being made as well. And, you know, just because it's uncomfortable or inconvenient or difficult to deal with the consequences of that science, it's just not good enough. It's a complete cop out to be ignoring that science. And it's, the science is clear. I mean, the science has been clear for, for decades. You know, the science was clear when I first learned about climate change in 1980. But the world has been reluctant to take action because of the power of vested interests. So essentially you have had, here's the science showing us what's going to happen, but then you've had the, the big fossil fuel companies and, and the big corporations saying, don't take action. And, and it's also been this trade-off of what's going to maybe require a little bit of pain in the short term of some change and some transition and doing things differently, but for long-term gain. And so much of our political systems are set up so that we just ignore what the long-term gain is going to be. It's all about what's beneficial today. And I think that's another example and another lesson that we've learnt from the pandemic and particularly here in Victoria, where, you know, we have now got to, I haven't actually heard the numbers today as to whether we're on, on our 11th day of, of no cases. But yes, it's, we have suffered through, you know, a bit of pain and the, really people being constrained and, and economic suffering as well um, over the last few months. But we know that the gain is huge. And so learning that lesson when it comes to climate, I think is really important that we can cope, you know, perhaps there needs to be some, there needs to be a shift in business. We've got to get out of fossil fuels. We've got to you know, be supporting renewables. We've got to be doing things differently. There will be some shifts and some people will be a bit concerned as to how they're going to come out of it. So, but we need to support people through that transition and it's difficult times and the long-term gain is, you know, immense. I mean, it's the future of humanity. It's the future of, of life on the planet. I just, you know, it's, it's just so sobering to think of how much damage some people are willing to, you know, consider is acceptable just so that if um, to be furthering their personal interests today, yeah. um, just, yeah, uh, it's immoral, it's corrupt, it's, it's appalling. And it's really, you know, why those of us are in politics to be, you know, thinking about our future, why we're yeah. there and why we keep on going because uh, we have to, we just have to keep going because the consequences yeah. are so dire. Well, I, my very heartening experience a few weeks ago was the French climate, Citizens Climate Assembly people. I interviewed them and 
honestly, they just said we just need to get more people in on the decision-making, more people, and I know you would sort of go with that as well, consult more people. And you said in your response to this, Biden, you said, oh, this is a win for women, for LGBTQI people. It's a win against white supremacy, and it's a win against authoritarianism. And I think a lot of people have been watching America in this terrible, you know, conflictual situation and all of those people not having a platform this awful media that just seems to just not not know that they're there or, or persecute them so how will social change a lot of people say oh climate change is just a technical solution but i think we need society and culture to go along and how will social change do you think letting all those voices breathe you know we had that thing i can't breathe and i think that's yeah. the metaphor for this time letting all those people breathe and contribute the battle of our age to pull ourselves back from the brink. It seems to me that we really are at the cliff edge here and how will all of those new people participating and in a democratic way contributing, how will that help? Well, look, I think it's, it's a real lesson that you can make even a flawed democracy actually work. And, you know, the US political system and electoral system, it's got so many flaws and there are so many people that are disenfranchised and that's deliberate, you know, to keep poor people out, the fact that they've got voluntary voting. But even despite those flaws in the system, they have managed to get out, you know, that fascist, that racist, that mm. climate denialist, that person who is only in it for the, his interests and the interests of his cronies, they have, you know, he will be leaving office come January. And so that, I think, is a really resonating lesson in that you can, we can win and where we've got, you know, democratic systems that, although not perfect, are still basically pretty good, that we can use them to achieve change. And I think that's very, it's an important lesson for us in Australia because people feel so demoralised um, and when faced, thinking about the, all of the big issues that the world faces, and they think, well, what can I do? You know, yes, it's a big issue, but I can't do anything, so they don't engage. And, and then they don't even think about the issues. And so then when it comes to voting, even though we've got compulsory voting, rather than thinking about who should I vote for who's going to tackle the big issues of our, of our day, they end up voting for somebody who just offers, offers them a few more trinkets or a tax cut because they haven't thought about the issues. So if, it, if, you know, a lesson from that election is to give people that sense of hope and that sense of agency that by working together we can achieve change. And that, you know, here in Australia we've got a democratic system that, you know, again, it's flawed <laughs> and it's too influenced by, by big corporations and big donors, but it's basically pretty functional. And we know that when you cast a vote, that vote will be counted and that the results of that election will determine, you know, who our government is. And so it means that for us as citizens, encouraging people to actually be politically engaged and to vote, that we can achieve change. And, you know, that's why I'm in politics and, and to get people to, to feel their power and to say there is something that we can do as people to stand up and fight for our future. Obviously, you know, we need to be getting big money out of politics we need to be getting, you know, the, the corruption of the, the lobbying that um, those big companies do, the revolving door so that, you know, politicians become fossil fuel executives and fossil fuel executives become politicians. That all needs to change. But we can change that too. And, you know, that democracy platform is fundamentally intertwined with our, our climate and, and our you know, racial justice and economic justice platform.
Well, that brings me to Zali Stegel's bill. Um, just if you'd like to make a brief comment about that, it was presented to the Australian Parliament yesterday, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, Zali Stegel's bill, look, it's a, it's a good start. And I think the, the benefit of Zali Stegel's bill is that she has got a lot of diverse stakeholders on board. So she's got industry groups on board. Again, it's a start, it's not enough. You know, setting up a, um, a framework for zero emissions by 2050, it doesn't tackle the need for the urgent action now. And in fact, if we feel that by setting up that framework for zero emissions by 2050 that we've done our job, well, then yeah. we have failed. We absolutely yeah. haven't. I mean, the, it highlights a, a failing of our political system, though, in that because she is an independent in the House of Representatives and because the government completely control the agenda in the House of Representatives, her bill will not get debated. It's been introduced, but it's up to the government to decide whether a bill gets debated in the House and so it's just got to disappear into the basement of many, many other sort of private members' bills before it. So that's, you know, that's... A, yes, that's I didn't what know that. Is that what happens? <laughs> why, why can't... Um, I thought she had created a, grou a groundswell of people behind her. That's right. And you would think if the government was concerned about that groundswell of people behind her that they would say, oh, yes, you know, this has got a lot of support, perhaps we should debate it. But that's not how this government works. In fact, it's not how the Labor Party work, has worked when they're in government either. When they've controlled the House, they control what gets debated. What happens differently in the Senate, however, is that the government doesn't control the Senate. And that's why the rules in the Senate are very different. And private senators' bills, we get to decide when they're debated. So there is time set aside each week for debating private senators' bills. So we have had, you know, obviously we, as a Greens bill, we, we need to get a majority support in the Senate for it to get through. So, you know, we will need to have the support of the Labor Party and the required number of crossbenchers. Um, but that's why, say, for on a federal anti-corruption commission, there was a Greens bill on that that passed through the Senate, has been sitting down in the House not being debated for over a year. <laughs> so that's at least, however, you know, it's got the standing of having passed through one of our Houses of Parliament which and, and to have had the debate and for the major parties to be have to be put on the record about it. You know, we have had numerous climate bills that we have introduced, numerous motions through the Senate, but um, for Zali's type of bill to actually go any further, I think she'd probably have to get one of the crossbenchers in the in the Senate to introduce it, um, working with her to introduce it for it to be debated, at least in the Senate, even if it's not going to be able to be debated in the House. Oh, well, that may be the next step, but that's very disappointing to hear given the urgency of all of this and a lot of middle road people were, have been pushing for that. I'd like to know, just to finish, what is happening now in the, in the Parliament about the gas-led recovery? Is that locked in or do you think this new US administration and others will sort of lean on us and pressure us to go straight through to renewable energy? Clearly, we've got a government that's in bed with the fossil fuel companies and in bed with the gas miners and the coal seam gas extractors. And they think that it's electorally popular in New South Wales and Queensland to be proceeding with massive gas extraction. But it's clearly just it's an absolute carbon bomb. It is, you know, the gas led recovery is going to result in more um, carbon pollution than the Adani coal mine. It's a disaster for global climate if these gas projects get off the ground. So the community, you know, 
outrage and and um, mm. is going to continue. But I think you're right in that the attitude of our trading partners is going to be really, really significant. And so I think the opportunities for Australia to continue to export the amount of gas and coal that we currently are are going to be very limited because we've already had you know China, Japan, South Korea um, commit to zero carbon emissions by 2050. They're not going to want to be accepting Australian coal and gas and now we look like we're going to have the US joining them. So the ex you know the export opportunities are absolutely you know their time is is fast coming to a close. You know, if you're really serious about, you know, the economic power and the ec economic well-being in Australia, we should be getting into, you know, exporting our renewable energy, which, of course, whether that's through, you know, cables interconnecting us into Southeast Asia or the export of hydrogen or the export of ammonia being created by renewable energy, they are such opportunities. That's what we should be doing. Clearly, while we've got this government, um, they're going to continue to trumpet on a gas-led recovery. So there's really, I can't see them changing. Frankly, it just means that we've just got to turf them out. They are not listening to the community. They're obviously not even listening to some, you know, global concerns. They're going to be going to the next um, climate conference in Glasgow next year, pretty much with a really, really weak position. And Australia will be a pariah on the world stage. Perhaps if they lose power, they'll realise that they've got to change and, you know, perhaps take some lessons from conservative governments like in the UK, which has, you know, adopted pretty decent climate targets. And we've seen, you know, the fault lines are in the Labor Party. We've had Joel Fitzgibbon just this morning resign from shadow cabinet and Labor have got to realise that, look, if they are serious about listening to our well-being, to our future, if they are serious about listening to the science, well, then they've got to take serious action, not just zero emissions by 2050, mm. but, you know, serious transformational action beginning now so that we can be on track to be, for Australia playing its part in reducing um, global carbon pollution and giving us, giving us all a future. Yeah. Well, I'm disappointed about that Zali's bill and I'm, I'm not so convinced by what you've said about the flawed democracy coming good in the end because it seemed very dire. And when I've come to Canberra, you know, I pop into the different houses of parliament and I'm always shocked how few people are in there. Like I seem to go on days when there's one person giving the most eloquent speech. I could think this is, this is a beautiful speech and there's three people listening. I'm so horrified. <laughs> a lot of people listen online, but you're absolutely right, Vivian. And we, we need to be changing our democracy. We need to be involving people much more in you know having input into the our parliamentary debates you know mm. the greens have had have got a whole platform of how we can do that and involving community participation actually engaging people in these these critical debates and yes i mean if we if we had not a majority government in the lower house as well well then we could actually um get the changes that are required so that things yeah. like zali's bill could actually be brought on for a debate but while we have majority government they can, you know, they want to control what gets debated in the chamber and they've got the power to do that. So, you know, we'll keep working for those democratic changes in our democracy along with the changes, you know, in our, you know, climate, our environment legislation, mm. our social justice legislation, because they all go hand in hand yeah. um, in order to be giving people a say in their future. Okay. I'd better let you go, Janet. Thank you so much for talking to us. It's a lot to take in, but thank you very much and ever onward. Thanks, Vivian. One day, one day, one day,
so I was just saying, even though we don't have our land to our ancestors, we will actually return back, you know, our lands will be returned back to us one day, um, our bubu, which is our land, and, and our um, sciences and our knowledges will come back to us. Utopia from the Ashes, The Age of Repair is a new film by R.V. Lewis. We'll hear Kathy from Global Nurses United and Annie Leonard from Greenpeace USA. The whole wonderful webinar will be attached to the podcast of this show. Please download it from BZE Podcasts. I've been a nurse for 40 years. I'm one of the vice presidents of National Nurses United, NNU. And NNU is um, the founding member of Global Nurses United, GNU, which is a federation of premier nurse and healthcare workers union in 29 nations on every continent. And let me just say that nurses, we can see life's work reflected in this important film where the world dominated by corporate interests and economic growth is transformed to where everyone, everyone is essential. You know, that's exactly the world that nurses have been fighting to achieve for our patients, our communities, and ourselves. And increasingly since GNU was founded in 2013, Union nurses have been using um, our global collective power in that fight. And so over the years, you know, we came together from our respective countries to talk about the challenges in our home countries to discuss ways on how we can collaborate and provide solidarity to each other as we take on these global fights. Um, we realized over time um, that our colleagues and their patients are experiencing the exact same problems that we see here in the United States and all around the world. So, for example, you know, um, our nurse-led fight to win Medicare for All in America is interlinked with the fight of nurses all around the world to protect their public resources, especially health care, from privatization. NNU's Disaster Relief Project, um, the RN Response Network, RNRN, also opened our eyes to our colleagues' interconnected global fights. You know, we deployed volunteer nurses all around the world, providing hands-on care in the wake of disasters fueled by the corporate disregard for the environment, as well as the government incompetence. So in this work, we see firsthand how the global climate crisis threatens all people, all people, including forcing them to flee from drought and famine and the significant health impacts of corporate aligned government exploiting xenophobia from refugees and immigrants. You know, in our hospitals and clinics, the nurses around the world are also being asked to do more and more work with less and less resources. And of course, with this global pandemic has amplified all of the threats to our patients, healthcare workers and nurses. You know, in the United States, our black and brown and indigenous patients experience a much more severe impact of COVID-19. And our lives have been put at risk by the employers, as well as the federal, state and local governments who left us on the front lines without the proper personal protective equipment, PPE, that we really needed. So, you know, this pandemic knows nothing about national borders. And as a result, our efforts to contain and mitigate this pandemic to protect our patients, ourselves, must be a global scope.
because we can't come together during this pandemic, the GNU members uh, came together online, Skype, Zoom, Teams, to share information, resources, support, and solidarity. And together, we clearly understood that what was working effectively around the world during this COVID-19 uh, pandemic, as some governments with a collective voice of union nurses to guide them, they took decisive action on protective equipment, testing, surveillance, and sheltering in place. What hasn't worked is the corporate-backed government prioritizing profits over people. You know, I want to emphasize that in the United States, where our government has been among the worst of the worst in its COVID-19 response, the NNU members use their collective power to win some really important victories at the facility level. You know, these victories happened even in hospitals owned by the wealthiest of healthcare corporations on the planet. And that's because the collective power of working people can profoundly move mountains. Yes, we can envision a world that prioritizes public health and safety, the good, the safe safety of the planet, um, and human relationship is documented in this film. And so as Global Nurses United, we will continue to keep fighting for this world. And again, you know, I'm, a, I'm really in honor and awe to be on a panel with all of you. So thank you very much. I am a huge believer in the power of stories, and I wasn't always. I am a scientifically trained activist, and for um, years and years, I was trapped in the myth that so many environmentalists are, the myth that the truth will set us free. And I made charts, and I made graphs, and I chased people down and talked about parts per million and endocrine disruptors and numbers and graphs. And when people didn't listen, I made films and did everything I could. To, um, to just sort of shove my facts into people's faces, hoping it would move them, and it didn't move them. If the truth would set us free, we'd be free. Like we, we have all the truth about climate change and racial injustice and economic um, inequity and all these things. And so I really had a breakthrough by realizing that the stories that we tell ourselves as a society are blocking our collective ability to imagine something better. And if we can't really imagine and really believe something better, it's hard to fight for it. And it's not a coincidence that this happens. It is because um, the corporate elite bombard us with stories all day that serve to entrench their power and keep us separated. So there's stories like there is no alternative that they want us to believe. There's stories like um, inequality is the result of individual shortcomings rather than systemic failures. There's stories like we have to choose between a healthy economy and a healthy environment. You certainly can't have both. You know, these kinds of stories are just we're permeated, our society's permeated in them. There's the story of, of rugged individualism, that collective action is for weak people, and that if you're really strong, you have rugged individualism and the free market and privatization and neoliberalism, and those are the answer. And, you know, history has proven that wrong. And then, on top of all these stories, they use fear and racism to manipulate their way into the halls of power and write the rules that enshrine those stories. Um, when I think about the stories that are blocking us right now, one of the big stories that we really need to challenge is the scarcity story. I mean, how many of us have heard elected officials and business leaders and mansplaining uncles all tell us, nice idea, but there's no money for that. We can't afford that, whether it's healthcare for all or good, robust public water supplies or a, a social safety net or good union jobs, whatever it is, we can't afford that. We hear that constantly. But one of the things that the COVID crisis has taught us is that there is 
in fact, money, billions and billions and billions of dollars. And the U.S., I mean, all many governments, but I'm looking at, I work in the U.S., so I'm focusing there. The U.S. government, the same government who says that they can't afford health care for all or clean drinking water, the same government is giving billions of dollars to huge corporations. And there's more coming. So what I'm excited about right now and what Greenpeace is looking at is the moment we have right now. There is a once-in-a-lifetime infusion of public money, our money, our money, going into the economy right now. It's already happened some. It's going to keep coming. A once-in-a-lifetime infusion of money. And the old stories are crumbling. This is crumbling even faster than our public infrastructure is crumbling. So look at the opportunity here. If we come together and demand that this huge infusion of public money is spent to build this better future, the future that this film lays out so beautifully, this is a huge pivot point for our society. It would create millions, millions of good union jobs in caring for each other and in caring for the planet. Clean renewable energy and climate resilient infrastructure and decarbonizing our transportation system and regenerative agriculture that feeds people while healing the soil and helping the climate. Like literally the possibilities to do this right and solve multiple crises at the same time are infinite. And there are too many crises to solve one at a time. So this is our moment. Um, so there's so many things we can invest in if we work together to ensure these stimulus packages build the future laid out in this film. And we also have to make sure that we don't invest in certain things. And top on that list is fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are the key driver of climate change. And the existing already operating fossil fuels in the world blow us over the limit of how much carbon we can release into the environment and still have any semblance of a functioning planet. So you think about if we're already built, extracting and burning and processing too much, why on earth would we possibly add more? And any new investments in fossil fuels right now lock in that continued carbon production for decades and rob us of our window that we have left, our shrinking window that we have left to build this better future. So Greenpeace is doubling down to make sure that no public money goes to prop up an industry that is both deadly and dying. And because we are so committed to justice, we must ensure that as we transition off of fossil fuels, as we ensure that no money goes to fossil fuels and it instead goes to a just recovery, we must center the work, the fossil fuel dependent workers and communities. These fossil fuel workers are our heroes. They have built and powered this country. They have, they have made us a stronger, healthier country. And we owe them a huge amount, often at great cost to themselves, they've done this. And so we owe them a debt of gratitude. And unlike the fossil fuel companies that are dumping them on the curb as their industry declines, we will never waver from our commitment to a just transition. And that is how we are going to build the better future that is laid out in this film so beautifully. Thank you tonight to Andy, Michaela and Raoul for getting this to your ears. You can take it that step further by sending the podcast on to a friend. Go to Radio 3CR or look up BZE Podcasts and you'll find the link. Thank you to our guests tonight, Michael Lord and Senator Janet Rice, plus Annie Leonard and Kathy Kennedy from the LEAPS webinar called Utopia from the Ashes, which will be linked to this, to this show. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This week's action takes us up to Narrabri in New South Wales and Lock the Gate Alliance. With the recent approval of Santos's coal seam gas project, 
Local people up there are calling on you to switch for Narrabri. You go to the website of Genie Energy. That's G-E-N-I dot energy slash Australia. Genie Energy Australia. They are building the Northwest Renewable Energy Precinct right above the Great Artesian Basin. And if you become a mate or if you want to subscribe to their newsletter and eventually if you want to switch for Narrabri, you will be helping them. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Nara people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter.